From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. In the 28 years I've been here, one thing I have learned is the only constant in our life together is change. When you live in community, you have to have a schedule so that you do things in an orderly way, and yet you've got to have constant change or things get static. We look on ourselves not as an organization, but a living organism. Community has got to go through constant change because it's a, it's a living thing. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Claire Stober. She's creative director for Plow Publishing House and lives in Fox Hill, a Bruderhof community in Walden, New York. We're going to talk about what that word Bruderhof means as we get into our conversation. But we're talking today about her recent book that she helped to compile, to be the curator of, to assemble. We'll talk about that as well. It's called Another Life is Possible, Insights from a 100 Years of Life Together. Claire Stober, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm very glad to be here. I'm going to start our conversation by making sure that our listeners understand what we mean when we use this term Bruderhof. And so I'm going to ask a couple of questions to help to orient them within our conversation. When I was younger, I'm Roman Catholic now, but for about 15 years I was a member of the Religious Society of Friends. I was a member of the Quakers. And every time that a new acquaintance would hear that I was a member of the Society of Friends, they'd look at me with a real look of confusion on their face, and I would stop them and I would say, you're thinking of the Amish. And so there's this habit whenever anyone thinks about a kind of radical Protestant community that is founded in a certain kind of movement that we call radical pacifism or Anabaptism, they tend to think about the Amish. And so, first of all, let me just kind of ask you a couple of questions in order for our listeners to differentiate that we're not talking about the Amish here. So when I say that the Bruderhof is an Anabaptist community, what does Anabaptist mean in that sentence? In that sentence, that means that we do stem from the same origins as the Amish and Mennonites. And by the way, the Amish were an offshoot of the Mennonites when they were trying to get back to more simplicity. So the Mennonites were first. And it means another baptism. And it was a movement that started as part of the Radical Reformation in the mid-1500s. And it was when people started being able to read the Bible themselves and realized that they wanted a closer relationship to Jesus and felt that they needed to be baptized as adults and make the decision for baptism as an adult decision. And their lives were radically changed. Well, and so 
this notion of needing to be baptized as adults, maybe someone who has been baptized when they were an infant, they may hear that and say, wait, is my baptism not valid? And so help me to understand some of the thinking that went on beyond that. So it wasn't simply the physical action of baptism, but there was something else that the Anabaptists were wanting to make sure accompanied that act of baptism, wasn't there? Definitely. It's a change, a total change of life. Like any of us experience when we experience the reality and person of Jesus in our lives. And that's what they had experienced. Many of them did come out of the Catholic Church and really wanted to express their newfound life in Jesus through baptism to express the the cleansing of their souls. We're talking about now the common source of these different communities that we've talked about, the Amish, the Quakers, the Bruderhof. And so... When we think about the Amish, we think about a community that lives sort of in isolation from the modern Western world. They refuse to use technology. They dress in a very particular sort of way, and they're very inward turned. What confused my friends when I would tell them that I was a Quaker is that they would think of that sort of image when they thought of the Quakers. But the Quakers are very modern. They're very interested in sort of being turned outward. They they embrace technology. And if I were to say that my impression of the Bruderhof was that they were a little in between those two poles, would you consider that to be an accurate reflection, or would you say it in a different way? Well, of course I'd say it in a different way. There were three branches of the Radical Reformation. It was the Mennonites, the Amish, and the Hutterites. And the Hutterites were the one that a lot of people have not perhaps heard of. And the thing that they have in common with one another is that they share all their goods in common. And we have been at times aligned with the Hutterites because the Bruderhof was started in 1920. We are considered a very modern appendage on the different Anabaptist groups. And in 1930, we were connected to the Hutterites and shared that testimony of holding all things in common. When you live in community and hold all things in common, you don't need to, so to speak, isolate yourself from the world and eschew technology because technology, the Amish avoid technology to avoid being disconnected from one another. And we're already connected because we are living in community. That being said, technology is something that we use, but don't race to be the first ones to have. It's difficult sometimes to to navigate the advantages and disadvantages of technology in anyone's lives, let alone a whole community. You mentioned that the Bruderhof are considered to be a relatively young outgrowth of the Anabaptist movement. You were founded in 1920 by a gentleman named Eberhard Arnold. I'd love to hear briefly about what motivated him. I would say a number of things motivated him. First, a very strong conversion at the age of 16. And then going to seminary later on and realizing through his reading of scripture that we should be baptized as adults and rediscovering the radical reformation, which is perhaps not something that was taught widely at the seminary in Germany at that time. Um, Then came the First World War, and he was drafted like so many other people and saw the devastating effects of the war on the people that fought in it and on Germany. This all happened in Germany. And between adult baptism and 
the just the futility of war, he came to a, a, so many of the same testimonies as the Anabaptists, nonviolence, adult baptism. And then the Sermon on the Mount was just really the definitive testimony or text for the life they wanted to lead. And after the war, Germany was just totally devastated. And there was a lot of power struggles for communism versus national socialism and the Weimar Republic. And it was just a a very uncertain time for everybody. And actually, the um, depression started in Germany in the 20s, whereas in the U.S. it started in 1929. And people were starving. And Eberhard Arnold and his wife and their children were starving in Berlin and had to move out to the country and were very much part of what was called the German Youth Movement. And they were in the Christian wing of the German Youth Movement and were seeking a more authentic and genuine way to live together and moved out to the country to put what they'd been reading about and talking about for years into practice. And that's when community started in 1920. And in the first couple of years of the community, they had thousands of guests come through their house, a few of whom stayed, many of whom kept moving. But there was a there was a whole country in transit. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Claire Stober. She is the author-curator of a wonderful new book called Another Life is Possible, Insights from 100 Years of Life Together, which is a photo essay describing the current life in the Bruderhof. Well, you mentioned a little bit about Eberhard Arnold, and you mentioned that in 1920, Arnold began the first Bruderhof community. Many, many people would come through his home to uh, be a guest. If a person were to journey and visit a Bruderhof community now, describe for us what they would encounter. What is it like to come to a Bruderhof? Well, we have about 28 different settlements on four continents, and there are about 11 of the larger settlements, and that's probably where you would come. And it's like coming to a small village. Each one has an elementary school, a dining hall, a community kitchen, medical and dental clinic, definitely a community laundry, a workshop or factory, and other workplaces like the publishing house where I happen to work. Before COVID time, we would all meet together for lunch in the dining hall. Now we all go there, or representatives from each family go there and pick up our food, and we take it home and eat in our homes. Families eat together for breakfast. Now they, as I said, eat lunch together. And then we go to our different school or different workplaces. Evenings will often be a meeting. Sometimes we'll have a special work push in our workshops or have choir. So usually there's something happening every evening. And then sometimes there are what we call free evenings to work in the gardens or socialize or do our hobbies. And then if you live in one of the smaller communities, each one of those is going to run at a different speed, depending on who's in the community and what they're doing. But there's always an outward focus of inviting people in from the neighborhood or reaching out to different neighbors. And so when we talk about a Bruderhof community, it really is a community in the sense that if you are going to be participating in one of these, you'll be swept up in activities almost all day, and the activities are very relational, very interactive. Am I hearing that correctly? You're summing it up really well. 
they are very relational and very interactive. I think what distinguishes us is that we were a fellowship of family and singles, and we try to live in the spirit of the first church in Jerusalem. We have renounced private property and share everything in common. And we see our vocation as a life of service to God and to one another and to our neighbors. And so we try to live together in peace and unity, very much aware that one should not be richer or poorer than another. And we try to look out for the welfare of the oldest, the youngest. And another thing that is really typical in the Bruderhof is that family life is treasured. And we try to provide meaningful work for everyone, regardless of their age. But I, I would also say what you've experienced is a lot of laughter, a lot of singing, and love of children. And so this practice of holding things in common, as we're moving towards break, I want to make sure that listeners don't get the misunderstanding that you are somehow removed from the commercial world, because even though you do share your resources, it is also true that Bruderhof communities are very involved in manufacture and commerce. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. But we enter into it in a more corporate sense together. Um, we have two main businesses community playthings and Riften equipment. And they are older established businesses that provide most of the income for our livelihood. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Claire Stober. She's creative director for Plow Publishing House, and she lives in Fox Hill, a Bruderhof community in Walden, New York. We're discussing a book that she helped to assemble called Another Life is Possible, Insights from 100 Years of Life Together. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Claire Stober. She's creative director for Plow Publishing House, and she lives at Fox Hill, which is a Bruderhof community in Walden, New York. Today we're discussing a book that she helped to assemble called Another Life is Possible, Insights from 100 Years of Life Together, which is a photo essay about Bruderhof communities around the world. Well, I'm interested, and I'm sure my listeners would be interested, in hearing a little bit more about how you came to be a part of a Bruderhof community. Were you raised in a Bruderhof? Uh, Did you come to it as a visitor and decide to stay? What was a little bit of your journey that brought you to be a part of this community? Well, I would say that I was on a journey of faith for about 15, 20 years. Personally, I, I would not have described it as a search for community. I grew up an army brat, 
moving all around the world and uh, was raised Episcopalian. But later, when I was in my early 20s, I had a real experience of Jesus and joined a, a Quaker or Friends meeting. And we called ourselves Conservative Friends. We met in our homes. We were very definitely Christ-centered, as were the early Quakers. And I lived in that small fellowship for about 15 years. And in that time, I had started a graphic design and marketing business with another member of my meeting. And we were living in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. So we were living a very affluent life, very fast-paced life. And somehow, I felt like there had to be more. I had earned enough money to be very financially secure and comfortable but I, I really wanted more out of life. So in my mid-30s, I um, left that business and was seeking fellowship elsewhere. And the group that I went to was another small meeting, and we were thinking about starting our own community. So we went to the people that we knew had been successful at communities called the Bruderhof just to visit and check it out. And within days, I realized that we could never on our own establish anything like this community if we tried. And so I do what I always do. I, I bought every book they had so I could read about it and learn about their history. And on the way back, we were talking in the car and all realized that we all wanted to go back and see what it would be like to live there. So about six months later, I came back as a seeking guest. That first visit had only been a week long, but it felt like a very long week because there's so much to experience in the community. So when I came back six months later, I was coming seriously seeking, is this what God has been calling me to? And it took me about a year's time to discern that, yes, this is what I would want to do. And I, I would add that after I'd been here for about eight weeks, I realized that there's a lot more depth in the community life here than I'd ever dreamed was possible in all the years that I had been in other fellowships. And that's what really called me to stay and seek even deeper. Well, and I, I want to stay with that for a moment because you said just a moment ago that when you were a Quaker, you were hungry for something more. And then you you said that when you visited with these other seekers, the Bruderhof community, and you came away realizing that you could never build yourself what had already been achieved there. It sounds like you saw a glimpse of that more that you were talking about, but I wonder if you can give a shape to that. What is the more that we mean here? Yes, I can. The more is the result of putting one's whole self into a position of trust, deep trust between believers and being transparent. And there's, a, there's just these deep relationships in Jesus that, well, if you read any journal or autobiographical account by someone who joined a religious order or has gone very deep in the spirit, they often talk of divesting themselves of themselves. The way I look at it is I came to the community thinking I knew a lot thinking that I had something to give. And after a number of years in the community, I was realizing that I spent a lot more of my time unlearning than I had anticipated I would need to. I really didn't know a lot. 
and there were people who had experienced far more and I had a lot to learn from them. And that learning came through interactions and through trust and transparency between the members. And there's just dynamics that happen when you live in committed relationships, lifelong relationships that help you to divest yourself of yourself and give room for Jesus to grow in you. That's so beautifully put, to divest yourself of yourself and give room for Jesus to grow in you. And how long have you been now a part of the Bruderhof? I came in 92, so I would say that's probably about 28 years. I would imagine that getting away from yourself to allow space for Jesus to grow is not a process that happens overnight. And so as this has been sort of unfolding... How have you encountered the change in these kinds of experiences of Jesus? What has been significant in terms of that journey with regard to that relationship of making room for Jesus in your life? Well, I think the first layer to come off is the layer of worldly ambition, worldly confidence, worldly distrust, worldly ways of being wary. That was the first thing I I could quickly slough. Then I would say the next level to go down to is beginning to see that I didn't have all the answers and that I didn't even know where to go for the answers. And that maybe that what I thought was wrong or right, there's a third way. When you get into a a question, you know, it's not an either or, Christ often comes as other, and beginning to see that the other is actually quite wise. And then I would say the stage I'm on now is one of a lot more compassion and nurturing. And now that I am reached the age of 65, I begin to become much more comfortable and, and see the need for a lot more compassion and openness to other people. And not that I wasn't before, but I mean a much deeper level of compassion and a much deeper level of openness and acceptance. And in doing so, nurturing their spirits. So there are many stages one goes through. Well, what I hear as a through line through all of this, when you talk about the kind of listening that leads to compassion and realizing that you don't necessarily walk into a situation with all the answers and that you're you're learning to sort of trust that God's providence is going to be a part of this journey, every single one of those brings us back to this thing that you said a moment ago, this notion of deep trust. It's a through line in everything that I'm hearing that you're saying. And as I'm thinking about that, I'm wondering because you can oftentimes hear about communities or communal arrangements where that deep trust is broken, where it's very difficult to maintain. So I'm sure that there are some things that the community does to care for that trust. And I wonder if briefly you could tell us how the community helps to maintain the hedges of that trust, if you will. Yes, there is. um, One of the very first things one does is learn that there is um, straight speaking and love. And that is where, and it's based on um, Matthew 18, that if you have something that disturbs you, that someone, another member has said or done, and you're in your spirit disturbed by this, you need to go to them as a sister or brother in humility and in love and 
quite willing to be wrong, but express to them what it is that you're disturbed about. And they also need to listen to you and either accept what you have said as an admonition and thank you for it or help you to understand what they did and why they did it without being defensive. I find it very difficult often to to act on that, but I find that when I don't is when seeds of distrust can be sown. So you, you really need to avoid allowing those seeds of distrust to divide people. Another really important aspect of our community is repentance and forgiveness. Forgiveness is in many ways, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to do things that we are sorry for, and we need to be willing to apologize for it and to forgive one another. And these are large and small things that we have to do. And without forgiveness, it's very difficult to grow and grow together and go on together. So those are two primary ways that we try to build trust within the community. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Claire Stober. She's creative director for Plow Publishing House, and she lives at Fox Hill, which is a Bruderhof community in Walden, New York. Today we're discussing a book that she has helped to assemble, a photo essay about the Bruderhof called Another Life is Possible, Insights from 100 Years of Life Together. Well, we've been saying throughout our conversation so far that you are the curator, the author, the assembler, the editor of this book, Another Life is Possible. And we've been trying in our conversation so far to paint a picture for listeners about the Bruderhof communities. But what I thought was so masterful about this book, Another Life is Possible, is it doesn't simply try and paint pictures with words, but it also shows with beautiful pictures and with in-depth stories about participants in in these different communities. And I'd love to turn now in our conversation and talk a little bit more about the book and how the book came to be. So first of all, when a person is ordering and receiving this book, Another Life is Possible, what was your hope that they would get out of that experience? So when we sat down and and we did this as a, a group, a committee of about six of us, and we met together about two years ago to discuss how best to mark our 100th anniversary. 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the Bruderhof communities. We decided we wanted to do a book. We wanted to do a website and a traveling exhibit that would use all the same content. And we wanted to reach both a secular and Christian audience of people between the ages of 25 to 55. And we wanted people to come away having read the book and think, another way of life is possible and it could be for me. Or this shows me what true Christianity can look like. These were actual bullet points that we had written down in our first summary of what we wanted to do. Or another one was, they've been doing this for 100 years. It's a genuine alternative to the status quo. We're not just some off-the-wall hippie commune or something. We've, it's been going for a long time. And I think what's most important to us is that they see that we're just normal people, but we've dared to do something different. And maybe I, as the reader, could try that too. So these were all hopes that we had when we put the book together. 
Well, one of the things that struck me as soon as I opened the book and began to pore over its pages, and I mean that because they're sumptuous, the book is oversized, the photography is throughout, and it's beautiful, I had kind of expected that it would be more like a history book, and I'd see a lot of sort of sepia-toned photos and a lot of old-timey pictures, but there really was not a lot of that. You all made a conscious choice, not so much to look backward, although there is some of that, but but to look to the present and forward. And I'm interested in kind of what it was that anime that choice. Well, I'm really glad that you saw that because that was exactly what we wanted to do. I didn't want to have us make a book that is, as you said, was filled with sepia tone photographs that only our members might or might not look at. I really wanted a book that looked forward because I one of the things I've strongly felt when I, since I came to the community and was refreshed by was that the, the older members were not always looking back and talking about the good old days. They were looking forward and encouraging us to look forward and encouraging us to take on the leadership and the movement. And so I wanted to somehow encapsulate that in the book. We wanted it to be a book that would have a long life and wouldn't just be stuck at 100 years. And I've mentioned at several points just the amazing quality of the photographs, and that's due in large part to a photographer that you collaborated with, Danny Burroughs. And I'm wondering, is Danny Burroughs a member of a Bruderhof community, or is he an outsider, or how did you come to work with him particularly to do the majority of the photos for this project? Well, that's a a really serendipitous story. No, Danny is not a member, although he is very close to us in many ways. He became very intrigued by our life in the year and a half that he spent photographing us. So Danny is a photojournalist, and he was working in Calais in the the jungle of the um, migrant camp there. And while he was there, he saw some middle school students sorting donations in their warehouse and asked the people in Calais, well, who are they? And they said, oh, it's a school group over from Kent and across the channel. It's a Christian school. And so when he got back home in Kent himself, he looked us up and contacted us and wanted to come and do a photo essay. Well, photographers average about one a week calling to want to come and do a photo essay, and they're all politely told, no, thank you. But when the person he talked to learned that he had this photo essay of the the migrant camp in Calais, they invited him to come and show them because they're very interested in what's happening. And he came and showed them and really communicated and connected with the students on a very nice level. And so a year later, when we were meeting together to talk about doing the book, one of the people on the committee is the one who contacted Danny and said, I'd like to see about using Danny Burroughs to photograph this. And so that's how he came to take the photos. And I traveled with Danny to 11 of our communities on three different continents and at about three weeks at a time in about four different sessions. He was very good at connecting with the people in the community. Just loved to talk to the different members of all ages. And as you can see by the photographs, he's excellent photographer, has a great eye. I'm struck by the fact that you visited so many of these communities. And I'm curious, you personally, had you been a sojourner to these communities before? Or was this the first time that you had ventured out into the wider world of the Bruderhof? No, I had seen the communities before, except doing this book was my chance to go to our Australian community with Danny. And we spent three weeks together in Australia. 
But I had been, we, we were in England in our two communities there, in the U.S., in the communities in the Hudson Valley, and then we were in Australia together. And then we sent him on his own to our community in Germany, Zanerts, which I visited. By that time, he didn't need my help to know how to navigate it. I'm going to ask you what may sound a little bit like an odd question, because you spent several trips journeying with this photographer, Danny Burroughs, and you had the chance to accompany an outsider to your community as this outsider was looking with intensity at your community. I'm wondering what you learned by watching Danny Burroughs watch the Bruderhof. He's not the first photographer that I have seen watching our community. About a week after I came back in 1992, National Geographic had a photographer come to our community. She spent about 18 months in the community, so I've, I've done this before. I would say what both of them had in common was the unfolding joy they had at meeting the different members and learning their stories and just being amazed at the richness and depth of our life. We do a lot of singing together. We do folk dancing together. We do a lot together. It's a very rich life to to photograph from that standpoint. There are a lot of communal meetings. And actually, when you're doing still photography, it's sometimes difficult to capture that sense of community in one encompassing photograph. And that's something I found very challenging. The other thing was, and they both also found challenging, was the relational aspect of our lives. A lot of it happens one-on-one or three or four together, standing, talking, listening. And I would often see groups like that and say, Danny, go over and take a photograph. And he'd go, but there's nothing happening. They're just standing there talking. I said, Danny, that's community. A lot is happening in that photograph. There's a lot that happens in these relational exchanges that we have. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Claire Stober. She's creative director for Plow Publishing House, and she lives at Fox Hill, which is a Bruderhof community in Walden, New York. We're discussing a work that she helped to curate, a photo essay about the Bruderhof called Another Life is Possible, Insights from 100 Years of Life Together. You can also find out more about the book at the website anotherlifeispossible.com. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you'd like to hear more of these conversations, please visit our website at thingsnotseenradio.com. 
Well, we're talking today with Claire Stober. She's creative director of Plow Publishing House, and she lives at Fox Hill, which is a Bruderhof community in Walden, New York. And we're discussing a book that she helped to curate called Another Life is Possible, Insights from 100 Years of Life Together, which is a photo essay about the Bruderhof. Throughout our conversation, I have been referring to you with various terms. I've been calling you an editor, a curator. I have been saying that you're involved in the assembly of this process. And I'm using those terms because when a person opens this book, they don't simply see a beautiful series of photographs, but there's also a collection of stories, dozens of stories, in fact, a hundred stories. And you were responsible for helping to gather and edit all of those together. I would love to hear about that part of the process. So you're not simply the author of this book. You are the assembler, the curator of this book. Tell me about that process. Well, although my name is on the cover, the book and the website are actually sort of the product of the combined talents of other writers and editors and transcribers and web developers here at the community. And it's a perfect example of what we do all the time in community because everyone contributes their best efforts to a shared vision. And that shared vision in this case was the book and website. I sat with our committee and we came up with, and it took a number of sessions. We started with the subjects that we wanted to cover and we broke them into 10 segments and then 10 stories per segment. And then we wanted to find members who had stories that would fit those segments. And that was the hardest part was to come up with the stories or the members we wanted to interview. And we wanted to have, of course, a good mix of young and old, men and women, just a real cross-section of the community. So once we decided on them, my job was to go and interview them And we transcribed all the interviews, and then we turned it over to writers and editors who did that part. So I did about 150 interviews of members all over the world to get this. Then once we had the edited stories, my next task was to lay out the book using Danny's photographs. Danny took, I would say, six to 9,000 photographs, and edited them down to a body of about 3,000 that he felt were artistically good enough to have his name to them and wanted to give to us. And then from those 3,000, I edited it down to 200 that we used in the book. And so I put the book together. And we did have the book printed in Germany because there was a, a certain look we wanted to the book. We wanted to have it printed on uncoated paper and yet have very good print quality uncoated paper has this really honest feel to it. I just couldn't imagine this book on glossy paper. It's That's not our life. We're about real, genuine, direct, and that's what uncoated paper is. So I was really happy how the book turned out. What I love about that answer is In addition to talking about the very communal aspect of it, the fact that this was a project that had many hands, I'm also hearing very much your expertise as a graphic designer and a person who has been around printing for 
the entirety of your professional life. You knew exactly what you were looking for with regard to this book. And to me, that's the most beautiful synthesis that really speaks to the very first series of questions that we began our conversation with, the way in which the Bruderhof brings together both this communal aspect that is very careful about how it engages with technology, but also an embrace of technology and an embrace of the modern world when it will further the cause of this promulgation of a certain way, a different way of life. It's so beautiful the way that you thought about even the paper of the book. That's just tremendous to me. And what I'm hearing in that is that every single aspect of this book, Another Life is Possible, was created with intense care and with intense intentionality. Is that a fair statement? That's a very, you said that really well, all of that. Yes, you you read my mind. Well, if that's the case, some might come to a project like this and look at the way that it is put together and the fact that it was assembled in Germany and the fact that you were looking for a certain type of paper, and they might shake their head and say, I thought this was about simplicity. I thought this was about sharing things in common and the right use of resources. I thought this was about stewardship. This seems like excess to me. This is not excess to you, is it? No, it's not excess because this is about our life. And this is, a, I would say, a very genuine representation of our life. And we're reaching out with this book. And when you say you're reaching out, is the hope to do evangelism with this book? Is the hope to grow the communities? Or what does it look like to say that you're reaching out? Help me understand what that means here. Well, oftentimes when people come to visit, they go back home and they try to explain the community. And it's very difficult to explain the community without having been here. This book will go a long way to explain where those people just spent three days or whatever. Or if they're like right now in the time of COVID, people cannot come visit. And so the best window into the community is our Bruderhof.com site. And probably looking at this book and reading the stories, because when you come and visit, the first thing you're going to do is start telling your story and hearing other people's stories. Here, they've got a hundred of them right at their fingertips. And the website, anotherlifeispossible.com, has all the photographs, has all the stories. So if they want to go on there and read them, they're all available for free. It is, in a way, we're trying to explain the community to the wider world. And it has a number of different audiences, not just people coming to visit, but people wondering about who we are. Well, and you say that it's something that people can take with them to help to explain the community. Has that gotten a good response? Have people been taking you up on that offer, and have they been buying the book? Well, the book has been selling really well primarily through our own efforts at reaching out to people that we know and and offering it to them. So if if you have a a community of 3,000 people and half of them are adults or a third of them are adults, you've got a lot of salespeople there reaching out to people they know. And we're in our second printing of the book. But unfortunately, because of COVID, we have not been able to have visitors ever since the book has come out. It arrived here in March, just as it hit. So that has yet to be seen. 
Well, I know that you are very confident in the working of the Spirit and the unfolding of God's will in all things. And so I wonder, have you and your community been reflecting on what that might mean? Is is there a deeper meaning or a reasoning that you may have been discerning in this inability for people to be able to visit your community just as you have this resource for them to be able to virtually visit your community? I don't think we've looked at it that way. What we have seen is that because of people being stopped in their tracks, just like we were, and having to stay home and and reassess what's important in life, we've had a lot more interest in the community than we had before that. We also had, in the months of March and April, unprecedented sales of our more serious books, that are not just about our life, but just the more serious books that Plow publishes and interest on our website. So I would say that we're not deterred by the fact that the book came out just as the world shut down. We certainly could not celebrate our 100-year anniversary with all the plans that we had because we can't get together with different people and the people outside the communities, but we're just deferring that till later. No, I don't think we've really seen that as a setback. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Claire Stober. She's creative director of Plow Publishing House. We're talking today about a book that she helped to curate, a photo essay and collection of stories about the Bruderhof called Another Life is Possible, Insights from a 100 Years of Life Together. I want to linger for a moment on that title, Another Life is Possible. When I look at that title, and particularly in light of what we've been saying in this conversation, I see that title, I hear that title in two ways. It's a message of hope, another life is possible, but it's also a critique. It's also a way of looking at the world as it stands right now and saying the world that most of us live in, the world of most of my listeners, is a world that has inadequacies to it and that another life is possible. When I'm hearing the title that way, was that intentional or am I reading something into it that you were not intending to be there? That was very much intentional. I would say everyone who's joined the community has felt both aspects of what you described that our life is very much an alternative life to what we see as the default middle-class American life, and that there is something greater possible. Well, I want to respectfully then ask this question, because as I was flipping through the book, one of the things that did strike me about Bruderhof communities is that they tend to be very white. They tend to not necessarily reflect the diversity that is out there in the world. And so when we are talking about another life being possible, particularly at this time when there's not only COVID, but also the refreshed interest in movements like Black Lives Matter and movements for racial justice, I'm wondering if the Bruderhof communities think about this and think about what it might mean to have their own way of life that has been lived for the last hundred years change to begin to reflect more of the demographics of the world outside? We would welcome that. We definitely, our origins are in European background, but we have always welcomed people of all races within the community. In fact, we have a growing contingent of members coming to us from Korea. In fact, we, we started a, a new community in Korea within the last four years. 
but we have always wanted to and reached out to people of color in the in our different countries. We had people marching in Selma with Martin Luther King and would long to have more members of color come and change and influence our culture, definitely. Let me ask a, a follow-on question to that. And again, I, I mean this with the utmost respect. As we've been talking about the Bruderhof community, as we look at this title, Another Life is Possible, as we've explored the fact that the title was intentionally a critique of the world that most of my listeners will live in, I think some listeners might misunderstand and say, well, the Bruderhof is presenting itself as a utopia. It's a perfect community. Is that an accurate statement or is it a community that struggles like other communities struggle? And if so, how? We're definitely made up of human members and we definitely have our struggles and we are not a utopia. The community is not a utopian. Having lived it now, it's, it is just not capable of being a utopia. So I'd like to try something. I'd like to turn the title of this book, Another Life is Possible, sort of inward, recognizing that it was intended to be an offer to the wider world, a world that is feeling the inadequacy of modern life, to say that another life is possible. We can also recognize that the Bruderhof is not a utopia. It's not a perfect community. And so there must be times when the Bruderhof communities themselves look inwardly and imagine ways that they could change or ways that they could improve. They could say to themselves, another life is possible. And I'm wondering if you could explain what that process is like. Is that a process of joyous hope and anticipation, or does it bring with it some fear? I would think in any group of people, change does both. Some will anticipate it with great hope, and some will fear change or even within the individual, you'll have a little bit of both. In the 28 years I've been here, one thing I have learned is the only constant in our life together is change. When you live in community, you have to have a schedule so that you do things in an orderly way, and yet you've got to have constant change or things get static. And That's the last thing we want to do. We look on ourselves not as an organization, but a living organism. Community has got to go through constant change because it's a a living thing. Um, It's of the spirit. And if it doesn't change, it will die. It cannot be man-made. It cannot be maintained by man-made efforts. We have to follow the spirit. And with your background with the Quakers, you you probably can relate to this understanding of and yearning to discern and follow the spirit in whatever you do. And that's what we try to do individually and corporately. So often when we meet together and are discussing potential changes, we will wait on it. We will pray about it individually and corporately. We will think about it, maybe write to different elders about what we're thinking or get up and express it in a meeting. But there's constant thinking about different situations that we are or decisions that we have to make as a body. The community in the 28 years I've been here has gone through a lot of change in that we've started a lot of smaller communities, making our lives permeable, or I call it permeable, you know, the edges of of our communities and our life, easy for people to get to know and to enter into and to interact with people that are not part of the community. 
So we have a number of smaller house communities scattered out over throughout the world. And one thing that I learned from the book that was unexpected to me when I was reading through Another Life is Possible is that many of these communities perhaps for the first time in the Bruderhof, if I'm correct, are now in urban areas. So you have city Bruderhof communities as well as what I would always imagine, the more kind of agrarian kind of communities. Am I correct in that or did I misunderstand that? Well, we've never really been agrarian. We've had factories, but we have lived in more rural areas because, you know, to to house and to live 300 people together, you need to be a bit out of the city. But we have, yes, in the last 20 years, started communities in distinctly urban areas. We have one in Harlem that we've had for a number of years, one in Albany, different cities around the country, actually. We have one in Denver area now and Minneapolis. You spent the better part of two years helping to bring together this amazing project that culminated in this book, Another Life is Possible. I wonder if you have, as you've been collecting these stories and as you've been involved in this process, if you maybe have one or two favorite stories that arose from the assembly of this project. Either it could be a favorite story amongst the hundred stories that you collected from the interviews that you conducted, or maybe a behind-the-scenes story about something that happened during the assembly that was particularly memorable for you. Well, I definitely have a favorite story in the book, and it's a story of Sybil Sender. One of the reasons it's my favorite is it's her own voice. She wrote it for a previous book that the community put together called Seeking Peace. Sybil was a colorful character. There are many older members that I met when I first came that really impressed me and clinched that, yes, you're in the right group here. And Sybil was definitely one of those. Her voice and personality comes through, and I I knew her well. We spent many hours together competing at Scrabble, and she was an amazing woman with even a more amazing story than the short part that you get in the book. And so her story to me just sparkles because it's her voice. Another one was Dottie Button's story, and that is one that I wrote because just before we started this project, I'd sat at my father's bedside for the last 10 days of his life in a hospice. And what kept running through my mind was, what is the summation of a life? What is the, you know, just a lot of thoughts run through your mind. And I came back and immediately came into the funeral meeting for Dottie Button, a woman who I knew very well, who was, I would say, contemporary with my father and really wanted to in a way, express what this woman had done in that she had given up a middle-class life as an artist and she'd been to college and she'd turned her back on all that to come to this community when it was infinitely poorer than I did and to stake it all on following this vision for a better way of living. She was just a remarkable woman. And so that, that was my story that I wrote about Dottie Button. So the Bruderhof has been around for a hundred years. This book, Another Life is Possible, marks the centennial of the founding of these communities. That is one twentieth of the entire history of Christianity. One of the things I was struck by in reading through the book, Another Life is Possible, is 
how much the Bruderhof communities have always tried to live in peace and in harmony with everyone, and that includes their other Christian communities. They have not been antagonistic in the way that some other denominations have been during their history. And so even with that brief section of the entirety of Christian history, 120th, you have amassed wisdom. And I'm wondering, as we conclude our conversation, what is it that Bruderhof communities would wish to share with the wider Christian community that they have learned in that hundred years? What we have learned is that imperfect as each of us is, it is possible to live together in full obedience to Jesus's commands with a vision for the rest of the suffering world, like our brothers and sisters that are part of the Catholic religious monasteries and convents We are always outward looking and thinking about this other suffering people in the world. And there are a lot of misconceptions about life together, and it's something one has to come and experience. It is possible to do it, but only if you are subject to and and want to obey Jesus and his spirit. Well, Claire Stober, this book, Another Life is Possible is so clearly a labor of meticulous, intentional love. I enjoyed every page, and I could tell how much care went into each and every page. It was a masterwork, and it was such a wonderful introduction for me to the communities of the Bruderhof. Thank you so much for the time that you and your brothers and sisters put into the creation of this amazing volume, and thank you so much for taking time to speak to us about it today. Well, I've really appreciated having this conversation. Thank you. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.